we cannot avoid talking about some of the indicators that fall out from this stakeholder view of the corporation that the business roundtable articulated in 2019. We're in the process now in the midst of a bunch of companies starting to experiment with what that really means. Welcome to the Executive Compensation Podcast. On this show, we discuss all aspects of executive compensation. Whether you're a compensation committee member, a seasoned compensation professional, or just curious to learn more about executive compensation, then this show is the answer. Each episode brings you a focused and actionable interview on specific topics of executive compensation. This episode is brought to you by Meridian Compensation Partners. Meridian works with compensation committees to ensure the most effective processes are in place to go beyond mere compliance with governance requirements and create healthy, dynamic relationships between the board, management, and its advisors. Meridian helps boards use compensation to attract and retain critical talent and to make informed business decisions that will link pay and performance, drive business results, increase shareholder value, and mitigate potential risks. Learn more at meridiancp.com. In this episode, you'll hear from Andrew McKellarin of Meridian Compensation Partners, all about understanding performance measurement in executive compensation. Why is performance measurement important? For any medium-sized or larger company, compensation for senior executives is going to be largely performance-based. And at a large company, you can expect it to be close to 90% performance-based. So salary and fixed compensation may represent only about 10% of the total. And in an environment where companies, public companies in the U.S. have to hold, say, on pay votes, and in general, when external scrutiny is focused highly on pay for performance, it's important that companies do performance measurement, particularly as it pertains to incentive compensation. Even setting aside the uh, external market considerations, just in general, there are, it, it is possible to do performance measurement well or poorly, and that translates very directly to value created for shareholders and to the success of the corporation generally. Okay. And actually, just to backtrack a little bit, when we talk about performance measurement, what are we referring to? In an executive compensation context, until recently, we were talking almost entirely about financial performance. So for a long time, when you talked about financial performance measurement, or sorry, when you talked about performance measurement for a company, you're really talking about is our earnings going up? Or in a slightly different context, is the share price going up? Is total shareholder return improving? Are shareholders doing well? So that historically is what performance measurement has meant. It's still largely the case that we're talking about either the financial performance of the company or the performance of the share price and total shareholder returns, although it's probably fair to say that the indicators, the metrics that are being used, is a little more variety now than compared to historical. And then, of course, there are some new and emerging trends about how performance ought to be measured that are just starting to get some purchase in the market as well. Okay. So when you say that the performance measurements are a little more varied now, what are some of the other things that performance measurement is alluding to? There's kind of two different emerging trends taking place right now, and they are a little bit in tension. On the one hand, there is a movement 
uh, in the market now, brought into the, the light by the Business Roundtable in 2019, which said that the primary focus of a corporation should not be purely the shareholder, but also the stakeholder. And if you think about a stakeholder-focused view of the corporation, that translates to different ways of different yardsticks for measuring performance, many of which are not financial in nature. They're completely different indicators really aimed at those other stakeholders of the corporation than just the shareholder. So think employee groups, think customers, think the social context in which a corporation operates. And a whole series of indicators fall out of that. At the same time, and a little bit in the opposite direction, there is a push among some large institutional investors for the most part to not just focus on earnings, but also to focus on essentially returns on capital. Is a company earning a return on capital sufficient to exceed the cost of that capital when it's deployed? And those two trends are a little bit in tension with each other. There are also related ones to that return on capital idea. One of the large proxy advisory firms has really committed itself to using a, a term called economic value added or EDA, which is basically the same concept of measuring performance based on returns on capital over its cost. And we now find ourselves with probably a broader array of performance indicators from which companies should be selecting when they put together incentive compensation plan designs. Does that also cover the trends that you alluded to earlier in performance measurement moving forward? One third trend we see with performance measurement, I think this would apply certainly to financial performance measurement. It will probably find its way into measurement of other indicators as well is the the world of data and analytics is growing and getting more robust and more sophisticated. Where in the past, you would expect to see companies setting their financial performance goals on the basis of some budget or some fairly simple decision rules. What the future is revealing to us is more companies are becoming much more sophisticated in how they evaluate not so much the indicators to use, but the way you set goals once you have selected an indicator. So I'd say a third trend that really underscores the need to think carefully about performance measurement and to try and do it well is the fact that with greater volumes of data available and better analytical tools that are becoming available, the whole process of setting performance goals is going to become much more sophisticated for many companies. And I think it's fair to say that investor and other third-party expectations are going to also be getting higher and higher in terms of understanding how robust performance goals are set and holding companies accountable for those goals after the fact. Got it. So when we think about performance measurements in an annual incentive plan versus a long-term incentive plan, are there any differences there? This really gets to a foundational concept for compensation philosophies. It's fair to say, in general, annual incentive plan performance measurement is really designed with behavior in mind for an executive team. So you tend to set, use indicators and set goals that you really expect executives to change their behavior in order to reach uh, the goals associated with those various indicators. And so it's relatively straightforward to say, if you're thinking about an earnings indicator with a goal attached to that, an executive team knows what to do when it comes into the office on Monday morning to try and drive 
better company performance to increase earnings relative to that goal. By the same logic, you tend to see non-financial indicators find their way into an annual incentive plan. And that's because over a short run period, it's easier to motivate behavior for these things that you can't quite measure in the finances quite so well. Strategic or operational metrics and their goals tend to be measured in one year or even shorter increments, and therefore they tend to find themselves in an annual incentive plan context. By contrast, for a whole host of reasons, performance measurement in a long-term plan context is a little less about behavior and a little more about alignment. And what I mean by that is for several reasons, not least of which is setting a multi-year performance goal, which is what would be required in a long-term plan context, that is very difficult to do. And in a COVID year, even more difficult, bordering on impossible for many companies. It's fair to say that performance measurement is most naturally measured in a one-year uh, increment, a one-year unit of measurement. So to mitigate that goal-setting difficulty and also to align with the fact that long-term incentive compensation tends to be denominated in shares and follow a company share price, companies tend to rely on that. They rely on the share price and movements in it as a proxy for setting a more specific behavior-focused incentive plan goal, as you would see in a short-term plan. So you see more compensation just purely denominated in the stock, and if shareholders do well, then the fortunes of the executive receiving the award also do well, so they're aligned that way. And you furthermore tend to see more performance measurement done with reference to the share price. So in a long-term plan context, relative total shareholder return. So total shareholder return or TSR measured relative to a peer group of companies is by far the most prevalent performance measure. And you don't really have any incentive properties there. Nobody really knows how to go into the office on Monday morning and get themselves more relative TSR for their shareholders, but you have better alignment properties. So I think it's just a, a generally a true statement that you're going to see uh, different purposes for performance measurement in an annual plan versus a long-term plan. I should say as well, there are various technical challenges associated with measuring performance in a long-term context that also make it easier to rely um, more on financial metrics and or share price link metrics, things that have fairly bright line definitions for what performance attainment looks like less on strategic or operational metrics that more often tend to be measured in qualitative or subjective terms. Can you give an example of just make up a hypothetical company, what their annual performance metrics might be versus their long-term? I'll use two examples for contrast. So if we were thinking about a, a high growth company, let's say it's in some technology or digital media sector, fairly early in its life, market is still expanding, and that company's share of the market is also expanding. So a company like that, notwithstanding investor pressure to ensure that there are sufficient returns being provided on investor capital, a company like that is not going to worry too much about managing to the balance sheet and paying senior executives for balance sheet performance. You would not expect to see, for example, a financial return metric. and Furthermore, the composition of a balance sheet for a company like that is going to have less physical capital and more intangible capital that doesn't really show up accurately on the balance sheet. So in a case like that, 
you'd expect in the annual plan to see compensation committees paying more for top line performance. So revenue growth or some related indicators such as bookings or backlog or adjusted contract value growth balanced a bit by earnings growth and typically measured fairly high up the income statement at the EBITDA line perhaps. And that might make up 50 to 75% of the annual incentive plan. Depending on the company, it might also pay for strategic or operational indicators typically expressed as milestones in an annual plan context. We need to get a certain level of technology advancement finished during the year. So get to from 1.0 of our product to version 2.0. And so you might find a milestone like that in an annual plan. And then you would expect there to be an an individual performance component uh, for all executives, except perhaps the chief executive officer, where all of those non-financial indicators that support the company's mission, those would be expressed and they'd probably be similar, but not identical uh, across the senior executive team. In the long-term program, you'll see more vehicles that are purely share price based. There's no performance goal set in a long-term context, no financial performance goal. Historically, these would have been all stock options. In some contexts, that continues to be the case. But really, in the U.S. right now, the vehicle of choice has become the restricted stock unit, or RSU. And so you'd see awards of RSUs that vest purely on the passage of time, oftentimes with faster-than-typical vesting schedules. So where it might be typical to vest in other industries, to vest an RSU award over, say, three or four years. For a technology company, it might be done in quarterly increments. And those awards tend to be outsized and therefore the impact to shareholders with more equity being handed out, what we call the burn rate, is likely to be a bit high. So that's one end of the spectrum. By contrast, let's take a more mature company, say, some company that makes things, a manufacturing concern, where you have more physical capital on the balance sheet, less intellectual capital that you need to worry about, not such a great, not so many prospects for growth, and therefore relatively more interest in the profitability of the company and whether it's creating enough cash flow to support a you know a healthy dividend on behalf of investors. In that kind of context, you would still see financial metrics and in the annual plan, but I would expect them to be different from the high growth company comparison. So here's where a return on capital metric would probably fit in quite nicely, or even a, a metric like economic value added EVA, depending on the interest and sophistication of the management team. But absolutely more focus on profitability. So whether that would be a income statement metric, such as a margin or return on capital metric, balanced on the other side by some sort of growth focus metric. So you don't give the management team a pure incentive just to drive down costs, but to provide a bit of a balance. And I'd say in general, the theory of value creation looks for a combination of growth indicators and profitability indicators in some mix. And the mix really is what will differ from company to company and industry to industry. So you might see a cash flow focused measure you still might see a revenue measure, but it would be definitely balanced by uh, return on capital. And again, I think you'd expect to see uh, an individual performance component, but more emphasis on the stakeholder model of capitalism types of indicators. 
For example, you might see companies focused more on diversity and environmental governance initiatives, a little less on MBO type objectives in the case of the high growth company. And for this more classical manufacturing company, the long-term plan is going to include a heavy weighting to performance shares, uh, 50% or more, with the balance made up by restricted stock units, RSUs. So it might be as simple as 50-50 performance shares and RSUs. It might be a little heavier weighting to performance shares. And here, again, if it's a conventional program, you'd expect that performance share component probably includes relative total shareholder return. As I have noted, that is a prevalent metric in industry generally. It's also a metric that aligns pretty well with shareholders. So I think for the company I described, you could expect to see that as one metric in the long-term plan. So that's how things are today. Looking forward toward the future, where are things trending in terms of annual incentives and then also long-term incentives? When we think about future trends, we cannot avoid talking about some of the indicators that fall out from this stakeholder view of the corporation that the business roundtable articulated in 2019. And we're in the process now, right now, in the midst of a bunch of companies starting to experiment with what that really means. And it's fair to say what comp- the trend that has that started before COVID but has definitely gotten a bit of an accelerant effect from COVID is companies starting to experiment with indicators that probably link to the long-term health and success of the company, but they don't touch the near-term financials right now. And what's more, the linkage between these indicators and the long-term health of the company is difficult to identify and in some cases unproven. So this is where making a compensable metric out of a diversity goal, for example, is a conversation that's animating many companies. I think it's fair to say every company that Meridian works with would agree diversity is an important goal to have, however you define that. It's easy to say, we'll just pay for more diversity. We'll pay for the outcome. So whatever population we have that is underrepresented at our company, we will pay for improving that statistic. That's paying for an outcome. And it lends itself to some difficult issues with, say, tokenism or quota setting, paying people for achieving a result, however that result was achieved. And then in the case of something like diversity, you could be paying for the result without changing the underlying issues that drove the inequitous result in the first place. And so where it becomes tricky is sometimes you want these things, you want the corporation to focus on these things, but it's not necessarily the right move to pay for them because if you don't pay for an outcome, you instead have to pay for an input or for what we sometimes call a leading indicator. And that measurement is very difficult to do. Another good example would be carbon neutrality or greenhouse gas emissions, something that has to do with climate change. Most companies would say this is important and the long-term health of the company depends on what progress we make or what part we play in dealing with climate change and our carbon neutrality. But how do we pay for that and is it appropriate for us to pay for that contribution? 
This is a place where third-party standards led by large institutional investors may help, but they're fairly early on in their infancy. And so I expect in time, we will see more of those standards emerge and we'll probably see more companies beginning to tease out what the right metrics to use actually are and begin paying for leading indicators with better methods of measurement than we currently have. But right now, that's a difficult set of performance objectives for many companies. So that's one piece of tension. So that's one future I think we can see. In a long-term incentive context, we've had this year because of COVID, many companies take a step back and reassess just how viable is it or how valuable is it to set ourselves a financial performance target measured in multi-year increments, often a three-year performance period, when there's so much uncertainty in the world. And that we may see that trend away from that proves to be sticky. I think it's probably too early to say definitely companies will uh, cease doing business in their long-term plans with their performance share designs reliant on financial indicators that they have used historically. But I think it's fair to say there'll be a great deal of design review and redesigns taking place that will get deployed in 2021 and may have some staying power into future years. One thing I do not particularly expect is these very sophisticated models of financial performance measurements, such as economic value added, EBA, those sorts of very complicated frameworks are going to get purchased at companies that are already using EBA or something like it. But I don't expect those to override the general principle and priority that many compensation committees have, which is to keep programs as simple as possible so that they can be easily understood and apprehended by a broad population of participants in the plan. What benefits do you think there are to keeping a long-term plan now that companies are starting to think, is it even worth it to do long-term incentive planning because there's so much uncertainty in the world? Why should we have a long-term plan? And does it help or hinder? I think the main argument for keeping a long-term plan in place for trying to measure performance over a multi-year performance period It's a little analogous to the metaphor of the frog sitting in the pot of water that slowly starts, the temperature starts to increase until the frog is boiling and dies without knowing it. Not a precise analogy. In this case, most companies need to have or do have some strategic plan in mind that goes beyond one year. And if you don't have some program or mechanism in place that is trying to get you to where that future vision is, what you often can see is goals set from annual plan to annual plan that don't support the overall mission of where you're trying to go into the future. Now, maybe it's fair to say that there's just so much uncertainty in the world that we really can't plan for ourselves more than a year into the future. And if that's the case, then maybe we'll end up rethinking whether performance share plans ought to be used and retreat to designs that are based purely on long-term programs that reward for share price appreciation or at least share price maintenance, and that's it. But I don't think we've reached that point yet. And as we get through COVID and something closer to a state of normal returns, I think the idea that companies, well-run companies at least, will have a strategic vision of what they want the company to be in three or four or five years hence 
that idea will continue to, to have traction among corporations. And performance share plans are a good vehicle to use in support of that broader goal. A better vehicle, I would say, than trying to somehow measure in annual plan increments and hopefully build your way to the same long-term outcome. So then for a company that's trying to do their annual or long-term incentive planning right now, how do they determine which performance measurements to choose, both in terms of financial performance measurements as well as the non-financial? When we talk about of all the performance indicators that we could choose from, it really comes down to company business strategy. To a lesser extent, we can rely on what companies in our industry tend to do. But this is one place where what's market and what's right for us don't necessarily have to be the the same thing. So for a company that talks to investors, uh, to the capital markets, in financial performance terms, that company is probably going to find itself using similar or the same financial indicators in their plan. And this comes with a presumption, by the way, that the goal setting process is, if not ideal, at least manageable, that it is possible to set out a performance goal and be willing to pay people for it. For a company that doesn't talk in terms of financial performance, but say in an extractive industry context, for one example, talks more in terms of production or capital projects completed, they would use a different set of metrics, but it really, excuse me, it really comes back to what is the short and long-term business strategy of the company and how do the selected indicators support that? And if they don't, then you should probably stop using them. So there's a bit of a relationship there between the strategy that company takes to the capital markets and then the indicators that the capital markets itself uses to say, here's what we're expecting from this company. And there's you know, a bit of a chicken and egg scenario there, to be sure. One thing I would advise companies to be careful with is looking at past historical performance to be a predictor of the metrics that you should be using right now. So we sometimes encounter an interest, and it's a valid theoretical interest in saying statistically, which financial indicators seem to correlate best with total shareholder return, and then do that. And I'd say that's a very interesting theoretical exercise, but practically that is a very difficult relationship to establish. And so when you think about correlating what the company has done historically to share price performance, total shareholder return performance over the same time period, you're really measuring past performance based as a, as a correlate to changing market expectations for the future. And that really isn't a strong relationship. There's no real valid basis for that sort of relationship to become the driver of what incentive plan metrics you should put in your annual or long-term plan. I think it's there's valid work to be done there, uh, but most companies could be just as well served thinking about what metrics they think would support the long-term strategy in its own terms based on the economics of the business and less looking for some uh, historical strength of statistical association that may be a little tenuous to establish. I'd say in a long-term context, it's going to be more pure trade-offs. And the trade-off really will be 
do we think we can set a multi-year performance goal on a financial, or for that matter, a non-financial uh, performance indicator? If the answer is yes, then they should probably proceed to do that. And then you can get down to the next level of detail about how the goal is specified and whether it's measured in dollar terms or growth terms. There's all sorts of interesting design nuances that follow. But if the answer is no, then you probably revert to something that can be measured more easily over a long-term performance period. And that's where our friend relative total shareholder return comes back into the discussion. So paying for relative performance is much easier. The goal-setting burden really comes down at that point to just a question of compensation philosophy. And many companies that do use a relative standard for performance do so because the goal-setting otherwise is just too difficult. So it's probably fair to say that most management teams aren't in love with relative total shareholder return, but that's a trade-off they may end up making just because they don't want to grapple with the goal-setting challenges otherwise. And they'll deal with goal-setting in the annual plan context, allow the long-term plan to be more of an alignment exercise again. Can you just talk a little bit more about the relative versus absolute performance measures and the differences there? So when we think about relative performance measurement versus absolute performance measurement. For reasons that I'll explain, when we talk about absolute performance measurement, we're usually talking about a financial indicator or some kind of strategic or operational milestone type of indicator. We're not usually talking about the share price. And I'll come back to what that means in a minute. Similarly, when we talk about relative performance measurement, we're usually talking about a share price metric, total shareholder return. So when we say relative, we are often shorthanding for relative TSR. When we talk about absolute, we're usually talking about financial metrics or operational metrics. And there are a couple of reasons why the world looks this way. I'll start with share price metrics first, because uh, that's a little easier. It's very difficult, bordering on impossible, to say, here is our absolute share price goal or TSR goal and have some kind of logic behind that. Because what happens to the share price or TSR is not solely a function of the company's own operations. It's also a function of the capital markets and what's happening in the macro economy in general. So if a company said, for example, our goal is to pay for 10% TSR, and over the next three years, the capital markets deliver 50% TSR, then at the end of that three-year period, that 10% looks positively puny by comparison. By exactly the same logic, the company could say 10% TSR is our goal over the next three years. If the capital markets tank and you end up in a bear market, 10% could look ridiculously optimistic with hindsight. So unless a compensation committee is willing to say, we don't really care what's happening in the macroeconomy, we don't care what is happening with the indexes to which our performance is being compared. It's difficult to set an absolute share price or TS, TSR goal and be confident in it. And that's one of the reasons why the share price metrics tend to be measured in relative terms, because the only meaningful value is with reference to some index or some external market reference. Not quite the same story if we talk about absolute goals, but I'll try and explain that as well. There are some companies that will pay for relative performance, not TSR. So relative earnings growth or relative returns on capital. And that can be done. 
it does have its own set of trade-offs that not all companies are comfortable doing. One of those is, very practically, if you're measuring performance in relative terms and its financial performance, then you are beholden to whenever your peers themselves issue their own financial statements. So maybe that's not a big deal, but let's say you're using a set of adjusted measures that requires you to go through your peers' financial statements and make adjustments comparable to what you're making to your own. If that company, if a peer company releases its 10K, say, in the February, early March, it could easily take you a month before you actually know how you did on a performance cycle that completed more than three months ago at this point. Not a huge, not the end of the world, but it is a complicating factor. Perhaps more important, though, is if you're measuring relative financial performance, your choice is we use straight up gap metrics that have no adjustments for the economics of the business. And we measure ourselves on that basis as well as our peers and just live with the fact that gap is often not a good reflection of the underlying economics of the business. Or you go into peer data and you use assumptions in order to make the adjustments to peer data as close as possible to the adjusted financial measures that we use for our own performance evaluation. And many compensation committees are not comfortable with the idea of using assumptions, counterfactuals, but you really don't have any alternative when you're dealing with publicly available and only publicly available information for peers. So for that reason, you don't see quite as high prevalence of companies using relative financial metrics. So it tends to be relative goes with TSR, absolute goes with financials or non-financial, but not TSR metrics. And that's how that set of trade-offs plays out. Can you just provide a couple of more examples of hypothetical companies, maybe state hypothetical company A has this sort of business strategy and then which sorts of performance metrics would be important for them to include in their annual and long-term plans? Some more examples of you know, how company performance measurement schemes might play themselves out based on the economics of their own businesses. Let's use an insurance company as an example. One of the things we tend to see in a financial services context is a lot more use of discretion, a lot less use of very rigid, formal performance measure definitions. So there might be several performance measures implicated, particularly in an annual plan context, but not as much, not as much of a formulaic nature to those plans. And there are really two reasons for that. The first is anytime you're dealing with uh, a company that essentially has a fungible balance sheet, it's all liquid money assets. If you set, for example, a, a company like that, a return on equity performance goal or return on capital performance goal, that company can make that goal. There's really nothing preventing them from getting exactly to the level of performance you would like. But it comes with a significant drawback that isn't initially exposed in their financial statements. And that is, in order to get to that goal, they take on risk. Risks that they probably don't want to be taking on. And for a company like that, where it is essentially a fungible balance sheet, what you tend to see is a discretionary determination of performance. 
taking, for example, return on equity into account, also taking other uh, financial indicators into account that have a meaning for an insurance company. And these would include things like earnings growth, excluding investment gains and losses for Certain types of insurance companies that would include book value growth. They might include tangible book value growth, taking dividends and share repurchases into account. So know that these are fairly specialized metrics. These are not ones that you'd expect to see outside of certain financial services uh, companies, and they have a meaning in that context. But a compensation committee retains the authority to look at how were how was performance under these various metrics obtained and then make adjustments based on its own assessment of performance holistically. A related example would be a company, an insurance company that operates in the property casualty space. In a year with bad catastrophes, their financial results are going to be poor. There's just no two ways about that. But the performance of the people in the plan may be some of the best performance they've ever given the company. And so a discretionary framework allows a compensation committee in this example to look at performance through a set of catastrophes. And if you like, look past the impact of cat losses on the financials and make what they feel is the right decision, which might be positive bonuses, even if the numbers would indicate that no bonus ought to be paid. So that would be one example. Uh, Let's stay with financial services, but let's move away from insurance. Let's talk about a company in financial services that has significant reputational capital at risk. So whatever the company does, it needs to have one eye on, we're so large, uh, we have significant reputational capital at risk. It's unlikely that we're going to have grand sweeping growth objectives for our firm. However, we have uh, significant brand equity built up. We have a reputation and that is a significant asset for the company. In such a case as that, you're probably going to see a fairly balanced mix of uh, paying for some earnings performance, paying for some return performance, depending on the company and how much capital it has that's not intellectual capital, but physical capital. But here's where you're going to see a fair amount of attention paid to these emerging trends in the realm known as environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, where probably within a discretionary framework and probably not articulated as very bright line outcome focused goals, but more using rubric of leading indicators or setting the right context for diversity initiatives to improve, to flourish, for diverse goals to show improvement over time. You'll see a fair amount of incentive compensation allocated to those sorts of ESG-related goals for a company like the one I described that cares about these issues, that has at least paid attention to the stakeholder model of capitalism the business roundtable took forth, and that views there being significant reputational risk if they don't address these issues. And it's I'd say it's probably easier to do this when you have a discretionary type of design because then you don't have to be quite so crisp in how you evaluate performance with some of these ESG indicators. You don't have to worry about, do we trade off between paying for an outcome, which probably isn't the right thing to do, or paying for a leading indicator that we can't specify very well. You can pay for the leading indicator and just live with that lack of good specification if the overall 
performance evaluation decision is more discretionary in nature. And then finally, if you had to summarize all of this that we just talked about into one key takeaway, what would you say? So if I'm talking about performance measurement, it's probably one key takeaway that has a couple of different parts to it. The first would be use the financial metrics that are right for the business and don't follow the fad. So as a first order consideration, I would say most companies with their financials should be paying for a combination of growth oriented metrics and profitability oriented metrics. How you specify those depends a bit on the company in question, but that would mean don't pay a lot for growth if the growth prospects are limited. Don't pay for return on capital if return on capital doesn't make sense for your business, but do consider how you're going to balance growth and profitability. The second thing I would say is have a sense for what non-financial indicators are going to support the business strategy. The umbrella of ESG indicators is far too broad for any company to address every single possible ESG indicator and do it well. Rather, I would say separate between the things that are meaningful for your business and therefore you might be willing to pay for versus the things that are still important and goals that you have for the business, but not necessarily goals where you want to put a portion of people's incentive compensation on the line. And the third point I would make, certainly in a COVID context, is the share price and the market's perception of your company's performance can be a useful tool. So performance measurement can also be going back to old-fashioned notions about measuring performance based on share price appreciation. And so sometimes there's merit in going back to simpler designs, particularly in a period of uncertainty. This episode is brought to you by Meridian Compensation Partners. Meridian works with compensation committees to ensure the most effective processes are in place to go beyond mere compliance with governance requirements and create healthy, dynamic relationships between the board, management, and its advisors. Meridian helps boards use compensation to attract and retain critical talent and to make informed business decisions that will link pay and performance, drive business results, increase shareholder value, and mitigate potential risks. Learn more at meridiancp.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Executive Compensation Podcast. You can see more about this episode along with additional executive compensation insights at meridiancp.com. That's meridian, the letter C, and the letter P.com.